I am an artist and a writer and a cartoonist. This is Malika Garib. If her voice sounds familiar, that's probably because you've heard her on NPR, where she reports on things like the refugee crisis, gender equality, and women's health. And when she's not doing that, she is drawing up a storm. It took me a long time to admit to myself that I was an artist, but I just felt like I was the kind of person who like needed to sort things out by writing or drawing, sort my emotions out, and I think that that is my true calling. And after spending years carrying a diary in her backpack, where she wrote and doodled her feelings out, she finally answered her calling to become an artist. She just published a graphic memoir called It Won't Always Be Like This. It's sort of a follow-up story to her first book, I Was Their American Dream. And with a title like that, you know I needed to hear more. In this book, filled with red, white, and blue colors, Malika shares her story about growing up as a first-generation Filipino-Egyptian-American and trying to sort out her identity in the pre-internet world before tweets, selfies, TikTok videos, and Instagram posts were a thing. We're talking about a time when teens were heavily influenced by pop culture. I'm talking about like when Sean Combs became P. Diddy, or when Dawson from Dawson's Creek was every girl's illusion of love, or when Mean Girls was a sort of actual reflection of what cliques in high schools were like. You know, the pop rockers, skaters, jocks, geeks. I wonder what new cliques they have these days. Anyway, Malika and I share the experience of having immigrant parents, and this graphic memoir is a tribute to families like ours who came to the U.S. and tried to achieve this so-called American dream. Today, we are talking to Malika about her journey of owning her artistry, navigating between three cultures and two religions, and that sticky, sticky question we have all heard before. What are you? I'm Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough. Stories between black and white. Here we go. I have this true admiration and love for artists, y'all. I think what we contribute to society gives us a better understanding of the world. And so I was surprised when I heard Malika say it took her some time to own that title of artist. Why did it take you so long? Because in my opinion, artists are like the most valuable parts of a society. You know, when a coup happens, they try and kill like the doctors, the lawyers and the artists. So uh, what took you so long to love that? I think I tried to fit the mold that my parents wanted me to sort of fit in. And that was, um, you need to do well in school. You need to graduate and do this big, important thing, working for a big, important brand. And my aunt once told me about how in life, everybody has a calling and it's not necessarily the work that you do on an everyday basis. It's about, it's the thing that drives you. It's your MO, it's your modus operandi. I'd always been thinking about what that calling was for me. And it sort of clicked one day when I realized that I just kept a diary all the time, a notebook all the time um, in my bag in my 20s. And if anything that I saw that was happening to me, um, if I was angry, if I was sad. And I remember one day I drew a notebook doodle um, while I was riding the bus that said, gosh, I can't wait to to write about this in my diary when I get home because <laughs> I had had a bad day. And I realized that that 
that's what artists do. I mean, they they need to make things in order to understand the way the world works. And it was a really late realization for me. I, I only started cartooning in the past, you know, since I was 30 and I'm now 36, but had always been sort of a casual doodler. And, and once I realized that, I was like, it just clicked and things started moving for me professionally in my creative life. Malika turned her casual doodles and scribbles into cartoons with story arcs. Her comics have now been featured in places like The New York Times, The New Yorker, and you can also find them on NPR's website, like a recent one she did that I love called How to Stay Cool Without an Air Conditioner. They're really quite delightful and fun. No matter who she's making comics for, though, Malika is always taking inspiration from her own life. When she was growing up, that life was pretty unique, thanks to her parents' very diverse backgrounds. Your dad is from Egypt. Your mom's from the Philippines. They both seem very uh, incredible in their own right. My mom, this is before the Me Too area, obviously, but my mom was my dad's secretary. Um, My dad was the general manager of a hotel in downtown LA, or I think it was in Hollywood. My dad asked her out for a date, and they went to go see like some Indiana Jones movie. That was it. They they got married after six months, and they they spoke English at home, obviously, because my dad is a native... Arabic speaker and my mom's a native Tagalog speaker. And, you know, the marriage didn't last. Uh, They obviously had a lot of cultural differences. And, you know, I'm really glad that it didn't work out because I got some really awesome siblings in their following marriages. But they're still really good friends. So they come from very different cultures, as you just said, and it didn't work out. But what did they have in common? That's a really, really good question that I've never considered before. Um... Gosh, what do they have in common? Um, I think they both really love traveling. They had sort of set it up where my mom would be working for an airline and my dad worked for hotels. So for a while when they were married, they would travel around everywhere for free. Um, so they both loved that. They're both very funny people. My dad has a great sense of humor and my mom is hilarious. She's very sharp. They're both very smart. I think that they're both news junkies in a way. I think my mom corrects me on my own news knowledge, especially <laughs> when it comes to celebrity news. And so does my dad. So they both like to v- keep up on things. In 2019, you came out with your first graphic novel, I Was There, American Dream. Who is they? They is my parents and my family who um, supported me and raised me as a young person and still do today. What do you think their dream was? I think their dream for me, like many immigrant parents of their generation who came to the United States, was that they wanted a child who could assimilate well into the United States, who would get the best education, go to the best colleges, have the best career opportunities, and sort of skip what they had to struggle with trying to adapt in America because I was naturally and perfectly American. I would just slide right in to perfection of the American dream of owning a home and everything. And I think one of the biggest things that my parents said, well, my dad said this, he said, I just didn't know that you had your own set of struggles being a, you know, second generation American. I thought that once we came here, like things would be perfect for you and great. And I was like, 
you didn't anticipate that I would have identity issues. You, you he'd always said to me like, "You have an American passport. You're American." And it's like, <laughs> you can say that all you want, but I don't really believe those words like unless you I don't know. I felt like I had to do the work to actually believe those words. Emotional work. If you could define assimilation in like a sentence, what would it be? Well, I think in the olden days when I was a kid um, in, in high school, assimilating meant shedding all aspects of my cultural identity, my Filipino-ness and Egyptian-ness, and sort of, and sort of taking on and, and being quote-unquote white, which was what I equated with American. And once I could achieve passing as white, then I would be fully assimilated. And now I don't think that's true at all, obviously. Um, I think that's a very warped and horrible way of viewing what assimilation means. I think it's being really comfortable in your own cultural skin, like your own being really comfortable in in who I am as a Filipino and Egyptian and and understanding the important role that my presence in America plays to this society and feeling an immense sense of belonging in my own skin. And I think in my today's definition, when I think about my own parents, I think about these are 20-year-old kids, children with children, who came from not much and decided to give their children something. And I believe that sometimes what we call assimilation is often just survival. Trying to give my child opportunity and trying to invest in the American dream, which is really just the story of mobility. Mm. And whatever I have to do to receive a check in order to make that happen, often from white employers, is what I'm going to do or teach or facilitate. So, mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean... I remember, I mean, I remember I was taught that, you know, from my parents and family. I mean, um, one of the biggest, I mean, I wrote this about this in my book, I Was Their American Dream, but, you know, my uncle, Tito Maro, Tito means uncle in Tagalog, you know, he told me that I was so lucky for going to a white school, like predominantly white school, like Syracuse, where I could really learn from the white people and I would get this first this first class, you know, look at, 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 at an examination. I could get this first class um, front row seat into, into white people and to really observe their manner of dress and how they ate with a fork and a knife and how they introduced themselves. And, you know, it just makes me sad thinking about it. That was my and pops you know, telling me to carry myself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. You know, Did or, he really say that to you? Yeah, or me knowing as a child to be on the subway, like looking at the Wall Street boys, because I would take the six down to Wall Street. I had like a little job down there and uh, I would go from the Upper East Side to Wall Street and I would watch these, uh, these, these men often, white men who seemed to not have a worry in the world. Mm -hmm. And I would study them. Study. That, I would study. Absolutely. I would absolutely study them too. And you know what I hate is that when I did graduate, you know, my family was right to some extent, right? There is a code. There's like some code that I didn't learn from them, but I learned from ob observing of how to be and how to act 
in a predominantly white space. A lot of confidence when you introduce yourself. You know, in Filipino culture, you're very deferential and very, very gentle when you enter a space. You don't want to make too much, draw too much attention to yourself. You have, you don't, in American culture, the early bird catches the worm, the loudest duck, you know, you know, makes moves. And that's not how, how Filipinos exert or, or sort of show their power. So in reading your book, I was fascinated by what felt like heavy diversity in your high school. Can you tell me about Cerritos, California? Yeah, it was such a great place to grow up. So Cerritos is, uh, is south of L.A. It was a predominantly Asian and Hispanic community. A lot of Filipinos, Koreans, Chinese people, a lot of Mexican people, a lot of Portuguese people. Um, and there were a few black and white people, maybe almost equal, I would say. And a lot of the leadership in Cerritos were Asian, which was pretty cool. Our mayors have been Asian when I was growing up. The people who worked at the library, you could see that they were Asian and Hispanic. Like, it was very diverse all around. Y'all, I gotta say, Cerritos reminds me of my own hometown, Queens, New York. I was very fortunate to grow up around so much diversity. Queens is the melting pot, y'all. If you take the 7 train down Roosevelt Avenue, you will get a taste of just about everything. Warm Colombian pastry, spicy Indian curry, Mexican tacos, Italian pasta, Italian ices. I could go on and make a menu, but we don't have time for that. Did you know that that was an amazing thing then? No. I mean, now looking back, like, I feel like it's freaking amazing. I, I, I wrote about this in the LA Times in like a comic op-ed about how I, I, I reminisced with my high school friends. Dude, why didn't we ever talk about how amazing it, it was to grow up in a place like Cerritos when we were in high school? And we talked about how the conversation around race has changed so much in the past few decades. Um, and we were able to sort of reflect on that a little bit in that piece. But one of the things that was really cool about it was that there was this like cultural exchange and this profound sensitivity around other people's cultures. Now, going back to Queens again, if you find yourself in Jackson Heights, where you have Colombian, Dominican, Ecuadorian, or Mexican communities, there's an understanding between them and respect. The district embraces and celebrates each country with gratitude. So I was struck when I got to her chapter about the most important question in her high school. What are you? What did it mean to you back then in high school? And how has it evolved? Okay, to be real, the what are you question really almost was like social currency, right? Like there was a hierarchy of Asians, which I'm sure you've heard about the hierarchy of Asians. I've heard about it, but tell tell others who have not. <laughs> okay, so like the hierarchy of Asians <laughs> was this horrible thing that, that, that I learned in high school. And I hope that other, like, I mean, this is awful. And I just knew that Filipinos like myself are at the bottom of the hierarchy of Asians. But um, so it was like, all the East Asians at the top, like Japanese, then like Chinese Korean. and Korean, yeah. and then like all the brown Asians, like if you were Vietnamese or from Laos or Cambodia, you know, you were sort of at the bottom. And I think that that was also like some weird, people could be like, oh, okay, so you're Filipino. Okay. And it's also like a way of like, a lot of people in school was still pretty segregated. So if you were Korean, um, you would be hanging out likely with a bunch of other Korean girls. If you were 
Mexican-American into Hot Topic, like you had your own group. If you were Chinese <laughs> and loved like Magic the Gathering, like you were in your own subgroup. I, I think that it was A, understanding what your culture was, because I think that there was a high level of sensitivity for that. But also B, understanding where, okay, so what's your social standing in the list of like cool races, which is also horrible. So for example, like Portuguese guys at Cerritos High School were considered the quote unquote whitest guys. And wow. being like a, a white Portuguese guy was like better than being like a white Hispanic guy. This is, look, I'm I'm only repeating things that are, that are, that was from high school. Please don't crucify me for this on Twitter. I'm just saying what we believed back then. Horrible. Seriously, y'all, don't crucify Malika on Twitter. She's sharing her high school experience, one that I can also relate to. You know, back home in New York, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans were at the top of the hierarchy. And maybe because we got the biggest parades, we earned some extra points. All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Malika is going to tell us how that what are you question changed when she went to college. Yo, we are back with journalist and cartoonist Malika Garib. When you get to college, you realize no one's asking this question uh, and you sort of miss being asked it, correct? Yeah, I did. I was around a lot of white people, a lot of white students and friends, and it just seemed like a very, very awkward thing to broach. People didn't know how to talk about it. I found it a very crucial point for me to mention that I was... Filipino and Egyptian, it seemed very important to share or disclose as part of, if they really wanted to know who I was, then they should also understand these aspects of myself. But it felt like the time and the moment never really came up. And it was always like a little awkward because I think they just didn't want to address it at all because they didn't know, they didn't want to say anything quote unquote racist. So only after my book came out, I Was Their American Dream, I had a lot of college friends coming back to me and saying, like, I'm so sorry I never, like, asked you about, like, your culture or, like, the things that you like doing at home with your family or, you know, I had a lot of, like, subtle racist things being told to me by friends. Um, I had a roommate once who, my mom shipped this plastic container of, I think it was, like, caldereta, which is, like, some beef stew. And she would always comment every day about how the fridge smelled so intense, and anyway, I was like, I just wish that we could have had more open conversations about race, but nobody knew how to talk about it then. You know, that was like 2004. I mean, people are still struggling to talk about it now. Uh, yeah. Please do some enlightening for us, because I think the world still struggles with this. What is another less rude way to say, what are you? Um, how do you identify? And I think that for, the, for a lot of people, that, that opens up a lot. Everyone could be asked that question. We have to ask that now at work for a diversity questionnaire with every source that we interview. And it's an open-ended question, and people could answer it in any way they like. It's a question for everybody. You mentioned your Uncle Tito earlier, and in the book, you talk about him a lot. He told you about the real world. He said there will be expectations on you as a brown woman and that you needed to learn them. Was your Uncle Tito right? 
Yeah, he was. And that's um, Tito Maro to you. Tito Maro to me. That's right. My bad. He was absolutely right. It was it was shockingly accurate. I think that one of the first places I worked was a corporate ad agency, and I highly observed, um, you know, how other people dressed, collared shirts. I came from like a punk style in LA, where people were very casual and laid back and had surfer style and that kind of thing, and I just had sort of had to adapt to that environment. Um, I once was invited to a, a dinner with like a professor and another colleague of his and some students and like we were eating at a fancy dinner table with like lots of forks and knives and I had to like, I literally had like a movie moment where I was like, um, I'll order the chicken extra rare. Like, you know what I mean? Like I just like didn't know what to do. So I just like copied whatever my other white classmates were doing. Um, but lots of little moments like that, learning how to pronounce things. I once said, Proven, proven instead of proven in a meeting and got laughed at. And I was like, all right, there's like a way that I have to be, which sucks. But um, I had to put on my white voice. That was way back in the day. I just want to pre- preface it with that. That was, that was a long time ago. I do not do that anymore. Uh, do you have your book on you by chance? Yeah. Um, can you read us page 47, por favor? Yeah, of course. Um, I wish that I could have smushed them all together into one faith. So, for most of my childhood, I did. Dear God, and the Virgin Mary, but sorry, not you, Jesus. Please let me get a good grade on my quiz tomorrow, and don't let me get in trouble at math class. Please watch over mom and dad and Min Min and Tito Maro and Nanay and Tatay. Amen. I mean, I mean, how Muslims say amen. Can you imagine being in these two worlds? Catholics have Jesus and Adam and Eve. Muslims have Muhammad. Catholics celebrate Christmas and Muslims do not. Catholics can eat just about everything, but Muslims can't eat pork. As complicated as it seemed, Malika always honored and respected what her parents taught her to believe in. Both my mom and dad were very religious. I mean, not like fanatically religious, but they were certainly like, you know, my mom had a statue of the Virgin Mary in her bedroom and believed in that that one day, um, you know, the Virgin Mary had appeared to her. And my father did go to the mosque every Friday. So I understood from the jump that my parents' religion was re- deeply important to them, and therefore I should respect that. And by respecting that as a young person, you sort of are instilled with this code of conduct. And for me, that was, you know, if my mom asked me to go to church with her, I would go. If she wanted me to go to Catholic school, I was obedient and I said yes. Um, I went through confirmation and communion and all of it. And um, with my dad, my dad really wanted me to memorize surahs, which is like the prayers from the Quran and um, learn how to pray, you know, dress conservatively when I was around him uh, and just in Egypt in general and, um, you know, not eat pork and things like that. What are your favorite things you learned from both religions? You know, I really like the pomp and circumstance of Catholicism. Like, I love the big churches and cathedrals. I love the music, um, the choral music. I love that everything is very somber and serious, and you really feel a great and overpowering sense of reverence and awe to a God above you. And I find real comfort in knowing that there's you know, the Virgin Mary, a woman figure, is there, this very maternal figure that you don't see in many other religions, but plays such an important role in Catholicism. 
And in Islam, I also love that the text never changed, the the Quran never mm. changed. And so when you're learning surahs, when you're saying the fatha, you know, you're really learning um, something that you're learning, you're reciting something that people for hundreds and hundreds of years have recited. And that's also very powerful for me. Do you practice or continue to practice either of these religious aspects or components? No, I, I think that I, one of the things that's been hard to understand or like put together in my head is that like in Islam, like Jesus is not God, but in Catholicism, Jesus is God. So I've had to sort of in my mind be like, okay, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus, but I definitely love the Virgin Mary because she's cool. So like I have some kind of like hybrid religion in my head. I don't practice any of the elements of both Catholicism and, and Islam. Like I um I haven't gone to a mosque. I haven't like prayed in in the Muslim sense in ages. Um and I do, however, sometimes go into um pop into a, a Catholic church uh, and like light a candle and say a prayer every now and then, but I would hardly call that being Catholic. If someone asked me how I identify, mm-hmm. lately, you know, part of my journey is I just say brown. You know, mm. I, I, I'm just a brown man. We can get into the into the nuances of being half Dominican, half Colombian, Afro-Latino, but mainly I, I choose brown. You use brown in the book. Mm-hmm. Do you relate? What is brownness to you? I have changed. My, my thought has changed a lot over the past couple of years even. It's also fluid, similar to you, and I think that's really interesting and important to talk about. When I was writing the book, I used the word brown to express solidarity with fellow people of color who were going through the same identity crisis that I was going through and who were also on a path of understanding who they are, understanding their cultural identities and going on the, their, I, all call, I call it their like wokeness journey, right? Like into yourself. I, I don't know why I call it that. Because I felt like I had suddenly been decolonized at like age 28. And then like I radicalized quickly after that. But one thing that I um recently have thought about was that saying who you are as a person, what your cultural identity is, is so freaking radical in and of itself. Why should I, I have spent decades trying to hide that I am Filipino and Egyptian and in favor of whiteness. So why now should I have to hide and say that I am not those things? This time, now more than ever, I want to freaking scream it from the rooftops. This Preach. is what an Egyptian Filipino looks like with a Muslim dad and a Catholic mom. And if that's new for you, then that sucks. But you should wake up and like realize that a lot of people around you are different things. Embrace who you are, folks. What is rooted in our veins is what makes us special. And if you are lucky enough, like Malika, to be living in these two different worlds, filled with so much color and life, then more power to you. Malika just released her second graphic novel called It Won't Always Be Like This. So go and get your copy today. You won't be disappointed. Y'all, we want to hear from you. So please get in touch. Specifically, we are looking for your stories about your names. Do you have a name that's unique? One that's hard for others to say? Do you have a funny story, an origin story? What do you think is special or beautiful about your name? Let us know. 
Send us an email or a voice memo to brownenough at stitcher.com. Again, that's brownenough at stitcher.com. You could wind up on a future episode. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Brendan Burns. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe, y'all, or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. And if you got a minute, leave us a review. A nice one. It goes a long way. Thanks. Witness Docs from Stitcher.